So today we have the great joy of uh, starting this brand new series. And as the wall will tell you, as the screens will tell you, it is called Christmas at Covenant. That was not accidental. This year, Christmas is coming back to Covenant. Christmas Eve will be here. And so every single Sunday that you're here, you'll look up at the wall and it will remind you at 4.30 and 6 o'clock on Christmas Eve, this is where you belong. What we are talking about today as we talk about uh, Christmas and the season that is upon us is about the promises that are made by God, by the promises kept by God. We're, we're talking about a promise making and a promise keeping God. This is interesting to me because we are uh, entering into a long winter. Actually, we've kind of started early this year, didn't we? We had sort of a cold fall, and it's been gray, and it's more snow than normal, and and just more cold than normal. The the fall is already presaging. We might have a little bit of a rough winter ahead of us. And and what winter tells us is um, that the darkness is coming, that the gray is coming. What we uh, look forward to as winter gets its kind of deepest point in February and maybe early March, we start waiting for that sun to peek up through the clouds, for the the sun to, to get a little higher in the sky. And that's a little bit about what uh, the Christmas season feels like for so many, is, is for so many, it's kind of a gray season, it's kind of a dark season, it's kind of a reminder of all the things not yet accomplished or not yet done, it's a reminder of brokenness or hurt or pain, and yet the promise is that there is a rising sun on the other side of it. As we talk about promises, um, I would ask you to keep my mother in your prayer, because she's going to listen to this, and um, she's going to re- uh, she's actually going to re-experience some pain. We've had it out this week, I was talking to her, I said, Mom, I need to warn you of something, and she goes, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, I'm going to be using you as a sermon illustration. And she goes, oh, again, if you're the mother of a preacher, you just get used to it, I, I think. But the pain in her voice said, maybe not yet. And so I was telling her that we're going to be talking about promises. And she was like, oh, well, I don't know where this is going. I said, well, mom, you broke a lot of promises when I was little. And she goes, wait a minute, what are we talking about? And then I brought up something that was very near and dear to my heart. I said, do you remember the baseball card shop on the way to the grocery store? She says, yes, vaguely. And I said, right, vaguely, because we never stopped there. Do you remember this, Mom? Yeah, I think I remember this. I know, I know what you're talking about. I didn't know it was this serious. I said, Mom, I'm still working through a lot of issues related to the baseball card shop. Every time we would go to the grocery store, she'd go, get on your shoes. We're going to the grocery store. I was one of four kids. We had two carts to push around, a lot of groceries to buy. And uh, so I was always the helper who would just go push the extra cart and zone out while we made our way through the aisles. We were going, our our grocery store is called H-E-B, which is um, short for the owner's initials, who was Henry Edward Butt. And so Butt's groceries didn't quite sound appetizing, they shortened it. So it's an aside, I didn't need to tell you that. But so I would remember to save my money and then um, I was pretty shy, but when I got the courage to say, mom, can we please stop at the baseball card shop? She goes, well, we need to get to the store, but maybe on the way back. And I'd go, maybe, can you, can you promise? Yeah, 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 I promise. We'll go, we'll go on the way back. Not knowing that as I get older and kids uh, steal my brain cells, that you say a lot of things as a parent that you don't mean. There's a lot of uh-huhs and yeses and sure whatevers. And, and a lot of like, do you promise, Dad? Yeah, 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 I promise. And then you pass the thing that you promised and it, it all falls apart. I didn't really know that at the time. And so what would happen is we'd go shopping and we'd fill up the back of the car with all the groceries. We'd be sitting there. Zooming back up Jackson Keller Road, I remember right where it is, as the glory of God shined upon trading cards, it said in big letters right on the front of the building, and we would just keep going. And around the corner we would go, and viscerally the pain would set in, and my heart would sink, and the tears would well up, and I was too shy to say anything. And so I'd just let us get all the way home, and then 30 years later I'd say, Mom, we always pass the card shop. You just sit in the back seat with the milk and eggs and a big pool of your own sadness. Maybe you've experienced that feeling before. Maybe you know what it's like to sort of be forgotten in the back seat of life. 
Maybe you have uh, the experience of a big promise never fulfilled, or you find yourself even now in a season of sorrow that is seeming to last a little bit longer than you wanted. Maybe you are in the waiting and the moment. That there's something you've been waiting for, there's a promise you've been expecting to be delivered, that there's a season you didn't expect or didn't ask for, and now you are sitting in the waiting going, God, what is next? This is common around the Christmas season. It's common to life. And what we know is that Christmas is actually a season of promise, not just promise offered, but promise kept. So we start today with a promise God made to Abraham, and I'm going to be in Genesis 15. The scripture says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, he was called Abram before he was Abraham, in a vision. And God said, Fear not, Abram. Fear not. That's going to be important. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a mem- no member of my household to be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man, Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Abram was old. He had no kids. God says, Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be Look at the stars in the clear night sky, so shall your offspring be. And it says, Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And this is not the first promise that he encountered. Genesis 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here comes another promise. The first one, it says, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a big promise. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To which we say, what does this have to do with Christmas? All great stories, I really believe, have intriguing openings. That first paragraph, that first page, the first chapter where you go, I'm going to keep reading this story. Some of them even have great first lines. Your high school English teacher assigned something, you maybe only read one line. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And so you know the tale of two cities. And and there's the, the other one, all children except one grow up, which was Peter Pan. Or call my Ishmael, it starts, and it's Moby Dick. So it's interesting to me that the greatest story ever told starts a little bit differently. That Matthew chapter 1, the very first page of the very first gospel in your Bible, the one that if someone said, go read your Bible, go read the New Testament, go read the story of Jesus, and you opened up to the very first page of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you start with Matthew, you opened up and it begins in a different way. Matthew 1.1 1, 1 says this, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Not exactly the most gripping introduction. This is the beginning of the begats. If you have the old King James Bible, you dust it off and you open it up, and what you see is this person begat, this person who begat, this person who begat, this person, and it's a story of ancestry. This is an ancestral story, the beginning of the most incredible story where the Son of God comes to earth as the Messiah to ransom the people and save the world. That story starts with, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And what we do when we see this, if you're anything like me, is we just go, okay, can we get to the good stuff? Where does the actual story start? Why this? Same is true, you look through the book of Numbers, if you ever scramble through there and you're like, okay, Numbers, 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 this is boring. Next book. But it's there for a reason. 
as ancestral stuff is boring for us, and yet there's a surprise in it. There's actually a surprise in it that, that I think might be, I don't say this lightly, might be one of the most beautiful surprises in all of Scripture. And that's something I'm actually going to hold back. And I'll, I'll tell you what that is on Christmas Eve, because I'm so excited about it. About the thing that God has set forth, that the ancestry, this first part which we skip through, actually contains what might be the most beautiful promise made and kept in all of Scripture. Christmas Eve, 4.30 and 6 o'clock. So just in the first verse, though, the genealogy of Jesus, the first verse of the gospel story, the first verse of the Christmas story, what we see is that Matthew has decided to root us in reality. This is why the genealogy is important, because there's so many great stories and mythologies that start once upon a time. There was a boy who never grew old. It's a tale of two cities. And Matthew goes, guess what? This is history. This is not mythology. This is not story. This is not fable. This is not fantasy. This is reality. So he drives back to David and to Abraham, two names that every Jew would have known. He drives back to a historical reality, and more importantly, he drives back to a historical accountability that you cannot read the Gospel of Matthew as an early Christian and not be able to hold accountable the writer because all of these things named, you would be able to trace it and go, well, he's right. So far, so good. That this is not some story made up, that this is an actual follow. Okay, wow. We realize quickly that we're not only rooted in reality, but in mentioning David and Abraham, what we learn is we're rooted in a promise. The promise that as an old man, Abram was convinced he wasn't having children. And then God in Genesis 12 said, and you all families on earth will be blessed. And then in Genesis 15 said, go and count the stars and greater will be your offspring. Matthew is rooted in reality and he's drawing back to the promise made to Abraham in the, in the previous days. Matthew is going to explain the promise kept in the pages that follow. He's going to lay out the story of Christ that actually fulfills the promise first made to Abraham. And I find interesting that when God appears and Abraham hears the voice, he hears fear not. Great promises inspire great fear in us often. How many of us live with anxiety about the future? My marriage, my health, nuclear war or disease, big things, little things, personal things, worldly things. Am I going to get that Christmas bonus this year? I don't know. But the budget requires that. There's anxiety there. What does my next career path look like? What does my next season look like? How is it going to go with my in-laws? Because it didn't end very well the last time we were together. God says, fear not. I like to think that in that moment, Abram, this old man says, uh, it's easy for you to say. Yeah, that's, that's nice. That's easy for you to say. I was at a wedding in, December, uh, in November, I told you about, uh, for my friend Matt. We're in D.C., and He's 39 years old, getting married to his very first girlfriend, which some people go, oh, they've been together a long time. And I said, no, no, he met her like six months ago. His very first girlfriend, he was 39. Matt had uh, more people praying for him than he probably knew because every one of us that had been praying for him for two decades had told other people to pray for him. And so there's a whole group of people that are saying, please give this man a wife. Not that it's the end-all, be-all to be married, but it was because it was deeply embedded in him. He was in middle school. This is weird. He was in middle school when he said, my only want in life is to be a husband and a father. I don't know many 11-year-olds thinking that way, but he was. 
He said, since I was little, since sixth grade, all I've wanted, all I've asked God for was to let me be a husband and a father. And he's 22, and he's 28, and he's 33, and he's 37, and he's never even been on a date. One of the most faithful friends I've ever had, someone who serves the Lord in ways you can't imagine, someone who leaves an incredible job at the apex of the largest law firm in San Antonio and says, I don't really want to do that anymore. I think what I'm going to do is join the State Department. So he joins the State Department and he says, I'm going to let the government pay me to be a missionary. Watch this. And he goes and he joins the State Department and they send him to work in the consulate of Tunisia in a Muslim country. And he goes, isn't this great? The American government is paying me to be a missionary in a Muslim country. And I was like, what do you do all day? He goes, I interview potential terrorists that are trying to get into the country. Isn't it great? And I'm like, wow, different sort of guy. Soon after that, his, his time in Tunisia ends, and he says, I've been praying that God would give me a new field, a new mission field, and the government would keep paying me. And so they send him back to D.C. to do language training because they're sending him to Columbia, and he's going to do the same job there. And it's there that he meets this, this woman who becomes his wife. We're at the wedding, and at the reception, his mom gets up to give a toast. And I was like, I didn't know this is the way this went. And I thought the father of the bride gave the toast, and then we dance. But she gets up, and she starts giving this toast. And I got a little bit worried for a minute because she literally says the words, Matt, we almost stopped praying for you. This took so long. And everybody kind of chuckled uh, awkwardly. And she goes, no, I'm, I'm serious. We prayed so hard for so long, and we all were about to give up. And here we are. Matt would say, I believe that God has my wife out there. He would tell us we were in a community group, he and I, in college. And then when I moved to San Antonio, he eventually joined that law firm, and he joined our church, and he joined my community group, and we were in a group again together for years and years. And he would always say, I just, just keep praying for me. God has my wife out there. His words were hopeful even when you could tell that his countenance was defeated. I have to wonder how many quiet nights he wrestled with God and just said, this has been the desire of my heart for almost 30 years, God. To which God would say, fear not. And I would imagine Matt would say, what does that even mean at this point? What we see in the Christmas season, what we see in the narrative here, what we see in going to Matt's wedding is that God is asking us to remember that he keeps his promises. But even more than that, God is telling us that God's timing is not my timing. And it's a reminder we need over and over and over again that God's timing is not my timing. That a prayer delayed is not a prayer denied. When we were missionaries in Africa, we had work to do in Kenya. So occasionally we'd fly up to Kenya and spend a week or two there setting up for a mission team, getting things ready. Every once in a while we would actually go and we would do like an assembly at a school in a rural area. And so there would be a thousand kids and all the teachers and headmasters, no cars, no roads, uh, no electricity, no plumbing, but very, very, very rural, and we'd go and do these, uh, like an assembly. We would present the gospel and meet with the children and give them things to help them uh, disciple the kids, and it was this kind of thing we did. And so in order to do that, we would show up and we would try to call ahead, but, you know, phones were what they were 15 years ago, and, and usually we just show up unannounced, and, and they would say, great, we would love to have you. First, let me let you meet the teachers. We'll assemble in the hall, and we'll all get together. And so the hall was like a tin-roofed um, concrete slab with no walls that everybody would just sit in kind of open air. And all of the teachers and the, the administration would sit at the front and all the children would sit silently. And then for hour after hour after hour, every single faculty member, staff member, administration member would stand up and greet us. But greeting was not, hello, my name is. Greeting was, let me tell you my life story. And so sometimes we would sit for three or four hours while these people introduced themselves to us. At the close of which, we'd have about 15 minutes and we'd say our thing and leave and go, what was that all about? 
And what the Africans would tell you, what our pastor Willie would tell you, what the Kenyans would tell you, maybe what Serge would tell you is you Americans, you have the watch. But Africans, we have the time. And over and over again, they would say, you have the watch, you're always on the go, but Africans, we have the time. And you are here in our country, and so you are on our time. And guess what? We have nothing but time in front of us, so sit and relax and just be. We got told over and over, Steph and I did, they would say, pole, 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 slowly, slowly. You Americans are always flying everywhere. You walk fast, you talk fast, you do everything fast. Pole, pole. God has the time for this. Don't worry. You know Hakuna Matata. Where do you think that comes from? What kind of culture is that? That's a pole, pole. God has the time sort of culture. Abraham's promise you would be blessed, and your family will bless all people, that you will have innumerable descendants. Did Abraham see that in his life? No. God said, pull it, pull it. I got this. That it was 2,000 years before that, that first promise was fulfilled, that the, the whole earth would be blessed by a descendant of Abraham. It was Jesus that came to fulfill the promise, but Abraham didn't see that. He didn't see it in his life. It was 400 years before Jesus' birth where there were not even a prophet to speak of his coming. For years, there were prophets, and they would speak about him, and they'd talk about him, and he's coming, and we got him, and he's this Jesus, this Messiah, the, the Son of Light, he's coming. And then for 400 years, generation after generation after generation after generation, that they lived, breathed, and died without ever hearing of the promise. It was a dark season for God's people I would think 400 years is long enough to forget the promise in the first place. And some of us feel like we live in that. Some of us feel like we're in the in-between now that we're in that season between the prophet and the coming where we go, where is the answer to my prayer? A promise of healing that I'm expecting, but the disease is lingering. The promise of reconciliation, but the resentment holds on. The promise of peace, but I am still at war with them. The promise of provision for my soul, but yet my soul is still impoverished. In our relationships, and careers, and families, in our souls, we have promises made, and so many of us are living in the waiting where the promise is not yet kept. So many of us are, li- are waiting in the winter for that first bud of spring to pop through, that first sign that life is still in charge. We say around here, everyone is in a battle. Everyone is in a battle. Big, small, public, private, everyone is fighting something in their life all the time. Some of the fiercest battles we face occur within us unknown to the person sitting feet from us. We pray, we wait, we hope. Father, deliver my child. Father, forgive my sin. Father, repair my relationship. Lord, heal my sickness. God, save our marriage. We open the gospel. We open the good news. We go, okay, maybe there's an answer here for the promise that I, that I think I've been given. Maybe there's an answer here for the prayer that I'm not hearing back about. So we open the gospels. The very first page, we go, bring me the light and the hope. Bring me the grace, God, that you have in the gospel. And we read it, and it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we go, ugh. Can we get to the part where the promise is fulfilled? In verse 6 of the first thing we read, it said Abraham believed and, and he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed. 2,000 years before the promise was fulfilled, he believed. Matthew is saying, look, God keeps his promises in radical, almost unbelievable ways in a timing you will never understand, but God keeps them. He's keeping records. He knows the score. If you ask, if you seek, if you knock, if you believe, it's coming. Your father knows you and he knows your needs. 
Your father loves you more than you can imagine. He knew the need of Israel thousands of years before they did. And he met it. He knew how he would provide. He had it all sorted out. He knew the need of you and I before we ever gained consciousness. He knows your sinking heart in the moment where you go, no, I'm still waiting, and I don't know if he knows this need anymore. That every time you pass the baseball card shop of your life, your heart sinks. That every day that goes by that that hope that you have, the promise you're waiting on, doesn't occur, your heart sinks. When we have the same problem as yesterday or the same existential hopelessness as last year at this time, our hearts sink. And Matthew is telling us to look backward. That time isn't what we think it is. That you may have the watch, but God has the time, and ultimately he's figuring this out, that maybe we're in a long December. Maybe the winter is lasting a little longer this year. Maybe the seed is still buried under the snow, but the promise is there that the seed will emerge. That the promise made is a promise kept in the Gospels as you read through them, as you get past the genealogy and you learn what Jesus came to do, you learn that the promise was fulfilled and that Jesus is the fulfilling of that. That he was the promised deliverance, he was the promised forgiveness, he's the promised repair, he's the promised healing. Jesus is the promise fulfilled. He is salvation, he's a promise kept to God's people, and he's a promise made to each of us and all who come after us. That God is in control, that God is never worried, and that time is not our business. Through a son of Abraham, you and I can see eternity. We see beyond time. We see the beginnings of redemption in our own lives. We see the the first sprig of spring come up. And it reminds us that life finds a way. It reminds us that the winter is only a season, that the spring is waiting, that the dawn only comes after darkness. No matter what season you are in, no matter how long this winter might be, Christmas is a season of hope. Jesus is a promise of a new day, And Jesus is the promise of a rising sun and a season to come because God is a promise-keeping sort of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in our need, in our lowest moment, in our our greatest time of need, that you were there. You were not caught unaware. You didn't have to arrange a plan at the last minute, but Father, you knew our need before we knew it existed that you make promises and you intend to keep them, that, Father, in our waiting and in our trials and in uh, the long Decembers that we face, in the long winters and the depth of snow that you have life and you give it to us freely. You have promises and the season changes and the promise is revealed. So, Father, that wherever we are, wherever we find ourselves today, whatever anticipation we have or dread or fear. God, that you would still our hearts. You would remind us of our truth that you've given us. That you are promise-keeping God. That the anxiety of tomorrow can wait till tomorrow. And that the promise of tomorrow is as good as done. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.